Welcome to the fifth entry in my Life and Times of Video Games interview series on the people and processes behind games history. This time around I speak to Kelsey Lewin, a video game historian and collector, retro game store owner and self-proclaimed Wonderswan enthusiast. Kelsey co-directs the Video Game History Foundation with Frank Cifaldi, where the two of them have been doing amazing work in preserving and archiving the artifacts of games development and culture. Not so much the games themselves, but rather more the packaging, the documentation, the source code, the marketing materials, the magazines, and more. And she's also a fountain of knowledge on the Bandai Wonderswan handheld and the early Nintendo electronics history their toys, like Game & Watch and the things that came before that, among many other things. So I thought that with this unique set of expertise, she would be the perfect person to bring on to talk deeply across the many facets of games historicization. In the interview you're about to hear, Kelsey and I discuss the challenges and also the merits of researching and archiving the artifacts connected to games development and culture, both past and present, as well as her insights on how the growth in retro gaming helps fuel interest in games history, why some of the most interesting stories are far beyond the typical narratives of games history, what quirky things we can find when looking into the Wonderswan and its inventor, the famed Game Boy hardware designer Gunpei Yokoi, and so much more. So without further ado, here's our full discussion, trimmed down and edited to clear out some awkward pauses, idle chatter, some umming and ahhing, and, and other little issues along the way. Enjoy. So one of my favorite things about the Wonderswan is that It has kind of this early indie scene that a lot of people aren't really familiar with. They actually sold a dev kit to consumers. It's called the Wonder Witch. It was developed by this corporation called Qute, Q-U-E, Q-U-T-E, excuse me. And uh, they made this dev kit so that people could start you know, just anyone, whether it was smaller actual studios or just singular people could start making games and programs for the Wonderswan. And it wasn't just games. It really was like programs and stuff as well. There was uh, people making GPS trackers for the Wonderswan and uh, even an NES emulator for the Wonderswan, which is something I've been trying to track down for a long time now. And they held these competitions called the Wonder Witch Grand Prix. And it, w- it happened three years, and the winner of the first two of these Grand Prix competitions actually got their software published. So two of the rarest games on the Wonderswan are uh, Dicing Knight and Judgment Silver Sword, which were just like fan-created games, fan, fan-made indie games that ended up on the shelves, uh, which is really, really cool and not something... You know, nowadays it's a lot easier to develop for whatever you want, even if you're just a single person. But uh, back then, not so much, because you needed to buy hardware. <laughs> That's awesome. Yeah. <laughs> so, I, I love I love that system. There's a lot of weird things, of, and people doing just really interesting things with it. I mean, I think even Phil mentioned this on the podcast you did with him, uh, Phil Salvador. He talked about the Mama Mite Wonderswan unit I have, which is this pregnancy tracker that was developed by Tanita, uh, like a healthcare and they're mostly like a scale corporation, like they make scales, um, (laughs) but they do other healthcare products. And 
they made a pregnancy tracking software for the Wonderswan, complete with a little infrared scale and everything that would talk to the program in the Wonderswan. So um, I had been tracking one of those down for like probably five years before I found a single one for sale ever. But <laughs> it's a it's a very interesting and strange thing. Uh, there were quite a few people basically using the Wonderswan as like a little computer, you know, but it used to be really expensive to put computer like or like, you know, computer electronics inside of things. So people ended up using things like the Game Boy or the Wonderswan to sort of be the brains of a, of a device like that. That's something that I think is really cool. And, you know, now that smartphones exist and everything's really cheap, it doesn't really happen so much anymore. Yeah. Yeah, aside from these uh, like weird little uh, side indie things, uh, there, there are lots of those weird hardware projects that... Um, For the Wonderswan? Uh, no, just like general hardware, weird, oh. weird hardware things that uh, sure. people do on the side. Yeah, I think a lot of the uh, the interesting stuff, though, now just kind of happens in apps yeah. um, because it's the cheapest way to do stuff. Everyone's got a phone, so that's what you use. And uh, back when everyone had a Game Boy and no one had a phone that they carried with them, that was what you used <laughs> instead. And then, uh, to a lesser extent, the Wonderswan, but there were still some really interesting things like a sonar and the pregnancy <laughs> tracker and a robot bug that you control with your Wonderswan. So. <laughs> Why would just trying to think? Why why would you actually want a sonar? <laughs> why would you want a fishing sonar? Yeah. Um, you know, I can't really speak to the fishing culture in Japan. I imagine it's bigger than it is here in general. Although, I mean, you know, it's an it's an island surrounded by water, so it stands to reason that fishing would be a a, a bigger deal. The <laughs> creator of uh, Koto Laboratories, which is who developed the Wonder Swan with Bandai Gunpei Akoi, a name you've probably heard. Uh, he was a big fisherman, so, I mean, he was deceased by that point, but <laughs> maybe there's some connection there. Um, yeah, I don't, I don't know. I don't know if the fishing scene's just, like, really, really big in Japan and necessitated a cheap sonar, but sonars were not super cheap back in the day. Just, you know, like I said, like any computer... Right, so mm -hmm. maybe if you already have a Game Boy or you already have a Wonderswan, this is a a little bit of a cheaper way to do it. It's already something you carry with you. <laughs> Your entry level I, device. I don't know. <laughs> um, so, what's what's your backstory to to like being into the Wonderswan? What draws you to this system of all the weird systems that have come out of Japan? Well, I, I'm kind of a big Gunpei Akoi fangirl, um, I guess is the best way to, to put it. I think that a lot of how Nintendo is even today, um, a lot of their philosophy comes from him, from back in, back in the day when Nintendo made toys primarily. Uh, he has this, this kind of philosophy that still persists there today uh, that he called uh, lateral thinking with withered technology, which is basically just taking some outdated technology that you can now get for pretty cheap and just doing the absolute best sort of thing that you can do with it. And the Wonderswan uh, is, I feel like, a really big or a really good manifestation of that philosophy. It's just kind of a, you know, it's got the monochrome screen, just like the Game Boy. It's not the most technologically advanced console, but it can run off of one AA battery for something like 40 hours. Um, it has the really unique way of 
being able to be positioned horizontally or vertically for different games. And then, of course, yeah, there were a lot of really interesting programs and not just games, but programs and uh, hardware and stuff that were used with it. So I think it's just a really cool manifestation of what you can do with uh, cheaper technology when you're thinking creatively with it. Hmm. Yeah. And uh, beyond even just uh, Yokoi, you I believe you're quite into uh, games history stuff that's a bit a bit obscure, quirky, offbeat. Um, uh, and I'm wondering what it is that, that you like about the oddities of history. So what I like about all of these things is that, you know, a lot of times people think of video games as just sort of an entertainment medium or... Uh, an art form even. I mean, there's all there's this range of respect, of course, in, in regards to video games and their history. But what I think is missing is just kind of all of the quirky things that people have done with video games. It's not just that they're always used to tell a story or to entertain or even to be art. It's sometimes being used to educate on something very hyper-specific or fulfill this really strange role that's not very video game-like at all. Something like, you know, there's a sewing machine for the Game Boy. That's just someone taking that technology and fulfilling a purpose kind of outside of video games altogether. And I think that that part of video game history is kind of, if it's represented, it's represented in a way that we're like laughing at it. Like, haha, look, there was a sewing machine. That's really funny. Who would have bought that? But I don't think it's that funny. I think it's really, really cool. <laughs> I think it's really interesting that people were using the medium of games, this entertainment medium, to do things that weren't really game-like at all and fulfilled something entirely different. Hmm. Yeah, I totally agree. It's like people are exploring what's possible and and that's just something that should be celebrated and and we should be like, oh, wow, that's so cool. What what else can you do with it? How else can we uh, come up with inventive ways to, to use this thing? Right. It's not just, you know, it's, it's not just a one-purpose medium or even a two-purpose medium. It's really kind of limitless. I mean, it's just a medium like TV or movies or any other kind of art form in that, you know, it's not just for a single purpose. Video games aren't just to entertain, they're not just to be art, and they're not just to tell stories or anything like that. You can do all kinds of things with them, just like any other medium, and I think we're still exploring that and we're still finding cool new things to do with this medium. Hmm. Uh, this may be a difficult question or an easy question, I'm not sure. I, I'm curious what you think we could learn from looking at the weird side of games history. Oh, that's a great question. I think, I hope it's inspiring for future stuff. I think when people see some of the more odd uses for video games, it'll, it, it can in some cases kind of get the gears turning and be like, oh, I had only been thinking about video games as this thing I liked playing for so long, but there are other things that, that can be done with it. So, I mean, I mean, it's kind of what I was already saying. I think it's it just can inspire more of that, inspire more of thinking about video games in a slightly different light, maybe appreciating them from a different perspective as well. But also some of these stories are just genuinely really interesting, some of the ways that these came about. I mean, a lot of people 
when they're working on these things, it's, you know, sometimes they're approaching it from a way where they're like, well, people already have video games, so maybe we can make this other thing fun and make it kind of gamified. And then sometimes they're approaching it from, I need to put a computer in a sewing machine and that's expensive. You know, so there's a there's a couple different ways that people approach them. And I think that it's 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 interesting from a historical perspective either way, but it's also can inform and inspire future stuff as well. Mm. Yeah. And that's why it's a it's really exciting to see things like the uh, panics new handheld with the crank. Oh, my gosh. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> the playdate was made for me. I feel like it's a it's such an odd, quirky little system. I think people forget that you know we have all of these like mainstream hardcore consoles now, and I'm even including the Switch in this. It's I know it's not as hardcore or whatever, but like games are as we move through the gaming generations, I think we always tend to appreciate games in the same way every time. Like, okay, all of the games in this generation have this level of graphics and there's a lot of open world exploration or whatever. And it's really refreshing, I think, to see a new kind of way to to play, you know, just a, an interesting new way of looking at how we can interact with games. And just, just the crank, just the crank itself, if you... Uh, the Playdate is this little handheld that's got the crank on it. If any listeners uh, haven't seen it yet, I encourage you to go look it up because it's awesome. But, you know, it's a monochrome screen in 2020 <laughs> with a crank on it. And I just think it's so fascinating that they're going in this direction that's so counter to what all of the other systems are doing. Hmm. Obviously, it's not meant to compete with you know, the PS5 or <laughs> anything like that. But it's a, it's a new way of exploring games that I think we don't really do anymore. Yeah, and uh, one of the most exciting things about it is going to be seeing what uh, game designers do with it. Like, these talented game designers who are always looking for new challenges, they're going to be so excited to see, here's something that I've never dealt with before, what can I do with it? Right, it's a whole new control scheme you're looking at and a whole new way of working with games. I mean, we pretty much, we have the things down at this point, right? There's either a keyboard and mouse, or you've got these analog sticks and number of buttons and shoulder buttons and all of that stuff. But when you kind of throw a new format at them, um, hopefully it'll get some really interesting things coming out of that. I'm I'm very excited to see what people do with the crank as a gameplay mechanic. (laughs) Yeah, it'll be cool. So uh, your day job is uh, in in games retail. Uh, you do retro games retail. Uh, I believe you've been doing this for about eight years or so, I think. Um, yeah, that's right. For So for anyone who uh, is not familiar with you and your what you do, uh, can you give a quick rundown of Pink Gorilla and, and how that all works? Sure, yeah. So uh, I co-own a couple of retail stores in Seattle, Washington uh, called Pink Gorilla Games. I co-own them with my husband and we've been, he's been with the company for about 10 years. I've been with the company for eight and uh, neither of us are the original owner. We actually bought it from the former owner. We were both managers there for a number of years and uh, we've now owned it for I'm about to have owned it for as long as I've, or half as long as I've worked there, so that's pretty cool. Uh, (laughs) 
And so we're a, a retro video game store. It's very, very heavily Japan inspired.、Um, you might be wondering what on earth do pink gorillas have to do with video games? And the answer is nothing. But if you've ever been to Japan or are familiar with kind of how their、uh, merchandising works there, there's mascots on everything.、Um, we have cereal mascots here, they have mascots for just literally absolutely everything there. So、uh, <laughs> that's where the gorilla part comes from, is just kind of. Adding a mascot to、uh, our operation. And yeah, we sell a lot of retro games. We sell a lot of import games. We also import a lot of、uh, keychains and plushies and that sort of thing, and just kind of try to take a little bit of slice of、uh, video game stores in Japan to the US here. So, you know, if, if, you ha- if you don't have a local game store to compare it to, I mean, it's like GameStop if they offered way more cool stuff. <laughs> <laughs> And it, the store just recently、uh, turned 15 years old, right? That's right, yeah. So, Pink Gorilla actually was originally called Pink Godzilla many, many years ago.、Uh, we changed our name back in 2009, so even before I was with the company. But yeah, we've been around for 15 years now, which is crazy.、Um, and I had a lot of fun going back and finding some of the old photos from those days.、Uh, in 2005, when the store was founded, it was a lot more difficult to get games from Japan than it is today. Nowadays, there's all these like forwarding services and stuff that you can use, and it, it makes dealing with Yahoo Auctions, which is the big, it's basically what they use instead of eBay in Japan. So there's a lot of forwarding services and that sort of thing to make getting things from Japan fairly simple. You can even order some stuff straight from Amazon Japan in many cases. But back in the early days, you know, we were providing a really difficult service. It was very difficult to get video games from Japan. So、uh, now, instead of just like the newest releases from Japan, because you could pretty much get those yourself if you just go onto Amazon.co.jp,、um, we try to provide a, a bunch of just games that are fun that are imports, mostly retro stuff, some more modern stuff. And just try to get more people into the idea of playing things a little bit outside their comfort zone. I really like handhelds for that reason because most of them, with the exception of like the 3DS, are region free. So you can kind of play around with some games that you have never heard of, never seen, never came out here. And、uh, that part of the job's a lot of fun.、Mm. What do you think the role is of stores like your own in,、um, in fostering community interest in video game history and, and preservation as well? I think that's a, that's a good question.、Um, I definitely think that when people walk into a store like ours, they kind of get a little bit of perspective on just how far video games have come and how much history they have.、Uh, you know, as soon as you walk into one of our stores, you'll see. There's a whole wall of like Atari 2600 games and then moving up all the way through PS4 and Xbox One and everything. And I, th- I think it gives people just like a little bit of perspective on what else is out there, stuff that they maybe haven't tried before, hadn't considered before, especially when you get to some of the lesser known consoles. Like, I'm not even talking super obscure, but just something like the Turbo Graphics or even for a lot of us in America, the Master System. The Master System was very unpopular here. and... So, a lot of people, even people who were playing games back in the 80s, have never heard of a master system. So,、uh, I, think it's, I think that we play a role, you know, just immediately when you walk in, in kind of giving people some perspective. And then 
uh, if they're interested in pursuing that further, you know, usually they'll they'll want to get some recommendations about what's interesting on these systems. Why should I pick up a master system? What makes you know what makes a Turbo Graphics worth playing? What's interesting about the Sega CD, et cetera, et cetera. And there've definitely been some people who came in just as general video game fans and now are either collectors or just someone who's interested in trying new things they haven't tried before. We've got a couple people who came in for PS2 games and left buying 3DO games, you know, it's uh, <laughs> it can, <laughs> it can get interesting sometimes. That's that's awesome. Uh, uh, 3DO is a really cool system. I I wish I I'd love to get one one day if I can uh, find some spare cash to pick one up. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that's one of those that is uh it's not fun to collect because there's just not a lot of games out there um i mean i think right now in our store we probably have less than five 3do games total so it's uh it can be a tough one to start collecting but you know there's (laughs) there's always other ways now uh you have a, a a reasonably substantial collection of your own uh can can you tell us a bit about uh, your your own collection, what you have? Sure, yeah. So I have slowed down collecting a whole lot since <laughs> I'm kind of running out of space here. And uh, <laughs> occasionally I look at this and I'm like, when was the last time I even fired up my Wii? But I collect a lot of handheld stuff. Uh, the biggest part of my collection is probably the Wanderswan, which is the only thing I, the only collection I will ever go for a full set on. And I'm getting pretty close on that, and I'm not really sure why I wanted to go for a full set, but I'm already over halfway there, so (laughs) Um, definitely want to finish that. I I think it's just one of those things where, like, you know, I see people with complete NES collections, I see people with complete Super Nintendo collections or whatever. Never met anyone with a complete Wonderswan collection, so it's obviously a system I enjoy, but also I think would be interesting to just be able to show off the entire thing to someone, especially uh, anyone outside of Japan, because, you know, it's a system that only came out in Japan. I do have a lot of kind of more odd stuff, you know, uh, blood glucose meters for the DS and sonars for the Game Boy and Wonderswan, and I'm just (laughs) looking around. (laughs) What else do I have? I do collect some old Nintendo toys, and by old I mean, like, pre-Game & Watch. It's mostly mm-hmm. 1960s and 1970s. Um, again, I mentioned I really like Gunpei Koi, so I have a couple of the toys that he designed, because I think they're all uh, pretty fascinating. So a couple of Ultra Hands, and uh, my favorite is this thing called the Lefty RX. Um, there was a time where RC cars were really big in Japan, and they were kind of expensive to produce. So his idea, Yokoi's idea, was I can cut the cost by like 30 or 40 percent if I make it only able to turn left. I don't know how <laughs> I don't know how the economics of that worked exactly, but um, so they just cut the ability to uh, turn right because if you're taking it on a track, you're pretty much always going to be just consistently going left forever anyways. And of course, if you need to take a right, you just take a really sharp left in a circle. So uh, I think that that's a really that's a really cool toy from that era that sort of, again, showcases that lateral thinking with withered technology. What can we what can we do to sort of make this cheaper, but still as good or even more good? Hmm. So, yeah, the collection, it, it spans many generations. I have 
probably about as many imports as I do uh, U.S. region games. But, you know, a lot of it, and I feel like this is the same for many collectors, a lot of it exists to pull out when I need to, like, make a point or show someone something interesting. And then a lot of the times I'm just playing Switch or something more modern anyways. (laughs) (laughs) I don't like to admit that, but it's probably true. (laughs) Yeah, pull it out when you need to prove someone wrong on the internet or something like that. Not quite like that, but, you know, I, I definitely show like to show off. off. Yeah. I, I think I have a lot of pretty interesting stuff in my collection. I like being able to show it off, um, especially when especially when people are kind of new to the scene and they're like, well, of course I like video games, but, you know, like I was saying earlier, they get to a point where they're like, oh, other stuff than just what I had and what my friends had exists, and I want to explore that now. I think I have a pretty good collection for helping people explore what else is out there um <laughs> yeah. so I, I do let let people borrow things sometimes too i'm not i'm not one of the crazy people that puts everything in plastic or anything and you can let people go pretty far down the rabbit hole with, with your collection of stuff yeah <laughs> in some cases yeah uh, i'm curious how important you think physical artifacts are to the history of video games Well, (laughs) um, my answer to this is going to be maybe a little bit not what you'd expect. I actually think that the physical games themselves, in a lot of cases, aren't that important. And that might sound kind of weird, but I'll try to explain best I can. So, uh, you know, when we talk about preserving video games, uh, there's only so much you can get from the game itself. And obviously we want all of the games to be preserved and playable in some format. Um, Thankfully, pirates have done a pretty good job of uh, (laughs) making all of that stuff available online somewhere. But when it comes to having a physical copy of the game, I mean, once it's been, uh, the ROM's been dumped, it's been scanned, it's been photographed, whatever, you sort of have everything that you can learn from that game. Obviously there should be some physical ones existing. I'm certainly not advocating for people to start throwing things away or anything like that. But I think in general, most of the importance gets put on the items, on the games themselves, and less on the things that I think are far more interesting and help us help us actually tell the story of video games and get the context and stuff behind them that a historian would actually need. So if you're looking at just a game, you know, if I take a copy of Pokemon Red or whatever off of my shelf, you get the game, which, you know, tons of people liked Pokemon, and you get the manual and the back of the box that you can read for a description of it, you can play through the game, but, you know, let's say you're giving that to, like, an alien, someone who's just never, has never heard of Pokemon, never played it, imagine how much of the story they're missing when they don't know anything about the like Pokemon mania that was happening in the late 90s and early 2000s. They All they got to do was play that game. They probably enjoyed it or whatever. Maybe they didn't. But you're missing like 90% of the story at that point. I mean, the fact that Pokemon was this enormous cultural phenomenon is far more interesting than being able to actually, you know, throw a Pokeball and uh, battle a Charmander or whatever. Mm. Yeah. Yeah, the stories behind the behind the games and and the devices uh, are, are often way more interesting uh, once you once you dig into them. 
Yeah, and I, I think that we have a real problem with that too. There's a real documentation problem in the industry because, um, you know, while we're doing a little bit better than, for instance, uh, I don't know if, if you're are you familiar with the Film Foundation and um, there, anyway, so it's a nonprofit and they have this statistic that they like to throw out that is 90% of all games made before 19, or sorry, all movies made before oh, 1929 yes, yeah. are missing are just lost forever. And I think we've done a much better job than that with games in saving the games themselves, or at least, you know, the ability to play them, download them on your computer and play them. But that's all we have. <laughs> that's all we've been good at saving is just the just the ROMs, just the ability to play them. And we're missing, you know, like I said, with that Pokemon example, we're missing like 90% of the story on a lot of these. Hmm. We're missing so much of the context, both the the cultural context and the like the development context yeah absolutely and that's really what uh the nonprofit that i work for the video game history foundation that's really what we're all about is that we think that that context of exactly what you said of both the kind of reception to it and the culture around it the media coverage all of that and then of course its development history is what is important uh, you know, the games uh, themselves obviously do have importance too, but when you're talking about studying a game or being able to tell the story of a game, if you don't have those things, you don't have the story. Yeah, uh, uh, before we get deeper into um, the stuff you guys do there, um, let's uh, let's step back and give people some context. Uh, how did you get involved with the Video Game History Foundation? And uh, oh. <laughs> I, I guess maybe also um, a really quick history for anyone who doesn't know. Sure. Um, so the how I got involved is sort of a funny story because I basically, I was a frustrated historian myself. And, you know, there have been lots of people making concentrated efforts throughout the years to do some level of preservation and it's a you know kind of a fragmented and splintered thing all throughout the internet there's these guys are working on this and those guys are are doing that and when the video game history foundation launched in 2017 something clicked with me and i was like oh see these this i didn't know it was just one guy at that point but i was like these guys get it <laughs> um, they understand that we need all of this other stuff. We need not just the games themselves. We're not just talking about preserving prototype games or rare games or anything. It's all of that other stuff. It's all the context. I get it. So what I did was basically just bother uh, Frank Cifaldi, the founder, pretty much just bothered him for like six months straight until he <laughs> until he <laughs> relented. Um, and, you know, not in a super annoying way, I don't think. I was... Uh, uh, just out of college, I had my degree in communications and I had done some PR work in the game industry and entertainment industry. And I was like, well, I just want to help because this is awesome. So let me do your PR. And, you know, he kind of brushed me off at first just because he didn't know who I was and totally fair enough. So I ended up just kind of throwing some stuff together and throwing it at him until he was like, oh, okay, you're serious. You, <laughs> you really do want to help. So that's how I got started with the foundation. We ended up just doing some projects and stuff together until uh, eventually last year he decided that I should be a co-director, which is really exciting, and I love my job doing it. But the foundation itself, yeah, it goes back to 2017, but really it probably goes back like a decade at least before that, because 
Frank has been doing this basically his entire adult life, has been working on, uh, you know, both advocating for <laughs> the history of video games to be saved and working on saving it himself. Yeah, I mean, the the Foundation's collection was... Uh... In the beginning, just entirely the stuff that he had saved over all these years, his massive magazine collection and, and yeah. various other things that he had picked up. <laughs> and in fact, we didn't have an office until uh, until last year, so it was all still just in his house until then. So, And, well, and storage as well, but <laughs> now we have an office and we've got all of our, we've got the huge library in there, which is really exciting. It's uh, about, I think it's over 10,000 uh, publication or sorry issues of pub publications not individual publications but um, about 10,000 different magazines in wow. there every single I mean it's it's almost complete runs of almost every American magazine and then we're kind of slowly going into sorry every American magazine about video games I should say <laughs> not every American magazine um, um, and we're sort of slowly going into import stuff as well, but um, really want to finish up the U.S. Uh, video game magazine and publication scene before we delve too much further into the expensive shipping and all of that with <laughs> mm. with other regions. Yeah. Uh, are there any uh, magazines in that collection that, that you've picked out and, and looked at and just been like, wow, I had no idea about all this stuff? Yeah, there's... Um, I mean, gosh, you can do that with almost any magazine in there. Yeah, uh, but one sure. of one of my favorite examples that I like to give is uh, we had an article on our blog. Can't remember if it was last year or the year before, but uh, it was a roundup of reviews for ET. You know, the the popular history is that ET was one of the worst games of all time. And uh, from rounding up all of these reviews of ET from these different magazines we found out that it wasn't even the worst game that month. Yep. <laughs> uh, people generally did not like Gorf as much as they liked E.T. So uh, I just thought that was fascinating because if you don't have access to these magazines, which you probably don't, in fact, if you want to go try to find uh, the January 1983 issue of Electronic Fun with Computers and Games, there's like two libraries in all of America that have any copies of electronic fun with computers and games and not even necessarily january 1983 just like any amount of them whatsoever uh, of course one of them is the strong museum of play in rochester which is um probably the the biggest collection of toy and game magazines if probably in the world i don't know if that's true or not but i would i would assume so and so it's really really difficult to get access to this stuff so it's no wonder that people buy into that, I mean, they can't really check their sources, right? You can't really, it's very difficult to go back and check and be like, okay, but what were the reviews of the time? So I really like that about our libraries that you can actually go back and, I mean, debunk a popular historical myth. Obviously, E.T. is not a good game, but when you go with just straight reviews from what came out, uh, what the reviewers said in 1983, they thought it was okay, they didn't love it. They didn't really like it, but they thought it was okay, and they thought Gorf was worse. Yeah, so many cool things you can dig into. I, I, I only really have a very small magazine collection, but sometimes I'll just pull something out and go, "Huh, that's interesting," and then spend the next two hours researching uh, 
stuff about something that I randomly found on the page. <laughs> yeah, you get so many cool... Uh, I really love how many rumors and stuff are in some of these old magazines, too. And it's it's things that even, like... I read this as a kid, but I just have no recollection of this whatsoever. Like, oh, yeah, I guess people were speculating about, you know... They thought the Game Boy Advance was going to look like this or whatever, and just making things up about it and speculating <laughs> and that sort of thing. So I really like... Um, being able to kind of magazines are a really good time capsule. Mm. You can just put yourself in the shoes of what people were thinking in you know in whatever year in, in 1998 or uh, 1983 or whatever. You can kind of see what people were thinking about the industry in general and what they liked, what they disliked, and I think that part is just invaluable for studying video game history is being able to see that sort of snapshot of where the industry was and what we were all thinking at that moment. Yeah, they they provide so much like color to to the whole picture of of video game history and I I love using them uh, to help uh add some some like extra context and put you there in the story, especially with my podcast, with with like the documentary style stuff I do, to pull something out of a magazine and try to use that to help you actually understand what it was like at the time before I then go and talk about its historical context and uh, and reflect on its legacy. Right. Yeah. And I think that. A lot of times, because people don't have access to this sort of thing, they get kind of a weird idea of how things were back then, or they question things. Like, for instance, um, a really obvious one that I like to use as an example is Earthbound. Everyone loves Earthbound. They love the Mother series now. I guess not everyone, but it's this huge cult hit now, right? But it totally bombed at the time. And people are like, well, why? It's it's a good game. Why would people not like this? And if you don't have the context to look back with some of these things to realize that we were on this cutting edge of 3D and we just, you know, that looked so outdated that people didn't even want to, they didn't even want to try to, to enjoy it. You know, it was like, this, this looks bad and look how good everything else looks. So why even bother with something like this? And you, you don't get that context when you don't, look at, I mean, not just magazines, but when you don't just look back at the context of the time and kind of where the industry was at the time and where the consumers of this industry is where their heads were at. Mm. Another uh, kind of cool thing that I've found when I, when I look at old magazines is um, games that had a vibrant community, like particularly games that had level editors in them. You could identify which ones had a really vibrant community by whether the magazines uh, kept covering that game in the months that followed its release. If they kept yeah. talking about it or they ran competitions for their readers, uh, that that would always give you a big hint that, oh, this thing has had some staying power. People are still playing this. Yeah, absolutely. And I think that, you know... It that especially being able to see it come up more than once can be really important because there were plenty of games that reviewed well, but then were just kind of never talked about again. Um, you see that a lot, especially in things like Nintendo Power, where it's basically an ad magazine and they're never going to talk too much crap about any of their own games because <laughs> it's a Nintendo published magazine about Nintendo games. 
so you'll see things like reviewed well and then never talked about again pretty often. So yeah, I think being able to see a continued conversation about something is is good at giving you kind of a more complete picture of, of how that went and not just whatever review score was tacked onto it. And then the other uh, really critical thing with magazines for uh, people who do a lot of the kind of research I do, and I think for you as well, uh, when we're looking into obscurities, sometimes we have no idea it exists until we happen to chance upon it in the pages of a magazine. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I can even think of examples from my own research where uh, there was magazines that report on something being in the works that never materialized and uh that's that's it that's the only proof we have unless maybe we also find a press you know the press release that came from or something like that but the magazines can kind of show us not just what actually happened but uh kind of what was being planned to happen and what people were thinking about and what publishers were were sending out to the magazines and telling them to report on that actually taps into um, something else that you guys do at the foundation, which is uh, preserving promotional materials, um, press packs, brochures, ads, catalogs, stuff like that. Uh, how, how, first, how's that going? How, how's it progressing? And then um, the usefulness and things. But feel free to just talk about it. Sure, yeah. So, uh, yeah, I think that... We call this just kind of in general, uh, like the media collection at the Video Game History Foundation. And that kind of includes sometimes the magazines themselves, but it's mostly just anything that was sent to the media or born from the media or born of the media that, you know, informs people about video games. So a lot of this stuff was, well, really all of it was pretty much meant to be destroyed or at least never shown in that context to the public you know press releases like here's what we have going on you know take some words from this and put it in your magazine but the magazine's never going to just publish the actual press release and once you've published the story or the little blurb or whatever you put in the magazine or website or you know whatever other media that you're using why would you keep that press release you know it's you're done with it it's it's over so being able to find any of that stuff is really a blessing. And we spent a month last year in May at the Game Informer offices. Game Informer is a, a really, really big magazine in the U.S. It's um, the biggest surviving <laughs> video game magazine. Uh, and they've been around since 1991. And they've basically never moved. They technically have, but they've basically never moved offices. And they were kind of hoarders, which was incredible. We're we're very thankful they were hoarders. So they had this giant room that they had just kind of been throwing everything in, just any press, anything they got, whether it was, you know, CDs in the early 2000s, where it would be like images and stuff on a, on a CD in late 90s and stuff, or whether it was paper stuff that they were sent in the mail. Um, there was all kinds of press releases, fact sheets, um, kits with things like slides, uh, you know, little tiny transparencies and and that sort of thing for, you know, for use in making the magazine. I mean, these were all things that they got in the mail and then they were like, okay, there's a, here's some screenshots from this new Acclaim game or whatever. We'll take these screenshots from these slides and we'll put them in the magazine and then we'll take this blurb from the press release or we'll play the game. Maybe they sent a ROM or something and we'll play the game 
and I mean like a physical romp. It's you know they'd send actual boards, of course, back in the day. Uh, they don't do that anymore, obviously, because it's so easy to just send things over the internet. And then again, once the magazine's out, there's no reason to keep this stuff. And in fact, sometimes the publishers would actually ask that you either destroy or send it back. Thankfully, Game Informer didn't do any of those things. <laughs> um, they decided to keep everything. And, you know, this, the game industry moves and really any, any industry moves so fast that, you know, was Capcom ever really going to come after them to get their get their stuff back or whatever? Probably not. Who knows? So they ended up just keeping a lot of this stuff. And so we spent a month there doing our absolute best to digitize all of this stuff. And it's not just things on CDs and DVDs. It's not just paper, although the paper was kind of the fun part for me. It's also, there's interviews on mini discs. There's VHS tapes. <laughs> there's, you know, there's there's these slides and transparencies and all kinds of crazy things. Um, DAT tapes, uh, floppy disks. It's all kinds of formats. I think we counted like almost 20 different formats that we were trying to digitize with a team of volunteers over the course of five weeks. And, you know, there's so much stuff that we weren't able to get all of it. Um, and because this is a, you know, a company and they're, they're not a charity and they're owned by GameStop and <laughs> there's all kinds of stuff there. Um, it's not like we could just dump all of this on the internet right away, but at least we now have the data safe. And, you know, the, obviously the intention is to work with them and all of that to get all of the stuff accessible to historians. But we really needed to get it digitized in the event that, you know, God forbid the building burns down or Game Informer closes and they just lock the doors one day, you know? So there's uh, there's all these kind of nightmare scenarios that can happen when you have all of this stuff just sitting there. And so we spent all of this time working on digitizing and getting all of this stuff preserved. And thankfully, I mean, it, again, it's not all of it, but a lot of it is safe now. And I think it's, uh, I feel a lot better about where it's at now than, you know, where it was before May. Yeah, it would be uh, devastating if you were to have all that stuff destroyed before anyone could save it. Yeah, exactly. I mean, they did all this work to to hoard yeah. it for us, right? So, um, oh, and to answer the second part of your question, what can people get from this? I mean, it's all kinds of stuff. Obviously, you know, for things like the interviews on uh, on mini disc and all of that, the, those are pretty self explanatory. But a lot of times, you would get uh, these press discs and press kits that have all kinds of things that they have way more information in them than a magazine was ever going to actually use. Um, you know, you're not going to do like a four page spread on the next ocean game or whatever, right? It's, you know, they send you enough, they send you way more than you would ever need. So that means that they're cutting things. That means that they're not reporting on everything, but this is history. This is straight from the company. This is what they wanted you to know. And so there's often things in there that have gone entirely unpublished and are completely unknown. I'll give you a great personal example uh, from doing this with the Game Informer stuff. So I did some research, um, gosh, probably two years ago now, maybe three, about the Super Nintendo Exertainment bike, which is a stationary bike that works with the Super Nintendo. Um, it's really awesome, fascinating piece of hardware. And... I probably spent a good 80 hours just chasing t 
tiny, tiny details about this thing. I mean, you know, the tools that are available right now for historians, you know, I called myself a frustrated historian earlier. That's, I was so frustrated trying to research this thing. I mean, you know, there's libraries that, you know, I, I actually pay an enormous amount of money to my alma mater so that I can still use their uh, <laughs> library database system. Um, and I've got like a newspapers.com subscription, which has many, many newspaper publications, but it's, it's still missing thousands and thousands. Uh, you know, there's just not a lot of places that you can go to dig for some of this information. So it took me a really, really long time to put together what I thought was really definitively just about all the information that exists about this thing without getting, you know, sometimes I can get interviews from people too, but sometimes they're just not interested. They don't respond. I can't find them. They're dead. You know, any of the above. So I spent all this time getting this information together. I think I did a pretty good job with it. And then when we were at Game Informer, I found the press kit for <laughs> the <laughs> Super Nintendo Entertainment Bike. And just sitting there on a fact sheet were all of these things that took me hours and hours to track down you know there's just there's a sentence about uh you know the other one the other type of exertainment things that are coming uh, like a stair climber and a recumbent bike um i guess that one's a bad example in particular because that was actually in print but some of these things that were on this press kit were things that took me a ton of time to track down and if i had just had this press kit i mean I would have still put in a lot of effort to this thing, but I probably could have been done with my research in like a quarter of the time. And so having access to stuff like that, A, I think, you know, because some people are going to be like me and they they actually like doing 80 hours of research, but I think there's a ton of people that are would-be historians. You know, they're interested in this stuff. They could be historians. They would be historians, but they just aren't going to do it for 80 hours. But what if they didn't have to do it for 80 hours? What if this stuff was just available and they could do a pretty thorough amount of research in like 15 or 20 hours, you know? So, yeah, there's a there's a lot of stuff you can learn from those. And I think that they're really, really helpful in kind of kickstarting people's curiosity when it comes to this stuff, too. Mm, yeah, for sure. And just thinking about the, the processes of of history, uh, the things that are on press releases are often super valuable, uh, not just for um, giving you that basic information, but for giving you things that you can use in your search, like giving you search terms and uh, keywords that, that you can hone in on as you go through all those databases. Yeah, absolutely. And also people sometimes too, you know, there'll be quotes yeah. from uh, someone that you didn't know was a developer on this or didn't know was the engineer behind this or even just the the press contact that's usually listed on the page. I mean, these are all people that you now have a lead on. You can go maybe try to chase those people down and get an interview out of them. Or maybe if they don't have anything, maybe they'll know someone that does. And, you know, in some cases that can lead you not just to a person and a good interview, but like materials. I mean, sometimes those people keep their stuff too. So yeah, it's a, it, it really is one of the best resources for study that I can think of. Yeah, I was, I was trying to think of, of some good examples of similar stuff happening with me, but so much of my 
a really deep history has been like obscure Mac games, and most of those didn't even get press releases in the first place. <laughs> yeah, if you if you crawl back far enough <laughs> in game history, um, you know the the whole press release thing. I think is a very uh, mid '80s to present concept. <laughs> I don't know that uh, that all the games were being advertised. You know, because there weren't video game magazines before then, right? Like there there really mm. weren't video game magazines um, in the '70s and early '80s. Like, there's a couple exceptions, but it's it's nothing like the '90s and uh, early 2000s where. It's there's so much video game media. And of course, today, I mean, we don't have magazines so much anymore, but there's like a million websites and YouTube channels and that sort of thing. So uh, there's way, way, way more to consume now than ever. And uh, if you go back to a certain point, you're looking at like sometimes there's trade magazines. If you're looking at arcade stuff and sometimes you'll find some coverage in toy magazines and then um, computer stuff, there'll be computer magazines, but it's not always about games. It's the games are either not covered or they're hidden in there among the useful stuff, like, (laughs) you know, programs that are, are for business or all of that. So yeah, it's a, that's definitely it, it. I'm a little biased towards the parts of history that are a little more easily studyable just because that's what I've done most of my research in is kind of post post mid 80s, I would say. <laughs> it does get easier. Yeah. And uh, actually, you're mentioning uh, the tiny little hidden mentions in computer magazines reminds me of a, a recent ish example uh, that. I can point to with my own podcast, the uh, the real sound episode uh, that goes into the story behind Dark Castle and Airborne and um, focused on the, the sound. They were two of the earliest games to have digitized sound samples in them on computers. That was like mostly a, an arcade thing at that point. And it turns out the Macintosh had this ability, he like built right into it at the beginning, but no one knew about it. And I, I got these great stories from uh, Eric Socker and Charlie Jackson, but I I needed things like old issues of Macworld magazine and Mac User magazine to be able to like, corroborate some of the things that they're telling me to 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 be sure that uh, it really did get this immense reception when they revealed Airborne at the first Macworld Expo. Is they have a, a report on um, what they saw on the show floor, and there's like two sentences that talk about airborne being amazing, just hidden <laughs> in there. And that's all you get. And that's you know that's when you know where to look too. You know you you knew which magazines might have that, and um, it, some it's maybe you get a little bit of a more narrow scope when you're talking about the Mac, just because there were actual Mac magazines, but yeah, I mean, sometimes you might not find anything at all. There could be a little mention of something somewhere, but especially in the 90s when there's so many different publications, it's like, okay, did any of these guys report on it? And if so, I mean, how many of these am I going to have to dig through to to find any mention of that? So, yeah, um, it's even when you have access to the things, it can still sometimes be difficult. Yeah, for sure. It's a... Uh... And you can't always rely on um, uh, 
like searching when you're doing it because the the text the like the the text recognition algorithms they might not have recognized all the text correctly and when you put in your search term uh, to search through magazines and newspapers the thing you're looking for might be there and it just it won't turn up because you're searching one word and it's been split into two somehow in the <laughs> the recognition algorithm or some other weird thing has happened and you're just not going to see it until you go through the pages one by one and spot it yeah the i think ocr is a huge blessing the ability to search through text documents um you know, for pretty much anything that's like on the Internet Archive or newspapers.com or any of those. Uh, but it is imperfect. <laughs> There's definitely it's definitely capable of missing things. And, you know, having the time to go through and comb through everything that could possibly have something, even when it's returning no results, is it's a time consuming thing. So, um. You guys at the Video Game History Foundation, you're, um, you, you've been putting a lot of effort into uh, archiving, cataloging magazines and, and press materials. Um, are there other particular areas that you're concentrating on at the moment? Yeah, so all of the media stuff, of course, is really important, but we also care about um, game development stuff as well. We just... Game development stuff can be kind of a tricky beast because a lot of times... I mean, A, not a lot of developers saved their stuff. Uh, B, they might have some sort of emotional attachment to it where they don't want to really let people see it. Um, you know, you have people like uh, Jordan Mechner, um, creator of Prince of Persia and Karataka, who has this incredible collection that he donated to the Strong Museum of Play, all of his stuff. But I mean, there's just, there's like straight up pieces of notebook paper in there where he's just kind of scribbling stuff down and you know writing down weird ideas and i mean i didn't see anything particularly invasive or anything on there but i mean it's a very intimate thing if you're working on something uh if you're working on a project i think sometimes the intimacy can be a concern and that's just paper stuff if somebody has like a hard drive backup that has some of the stuff that they were working on and it's a backup of their entire hard drive. They've got the projects of the games they're working on, but maybe they also have, like, you know, embarrassing stuff that they downloaded, or they've got, like, you know, diary entries or something they were writing in a word processor. I mean, it can be kind of scary, I think, for a lot of developers to want to let people in and see things and kind of study what they've, what they've been working on. And, I mean, that's not even touching, of course, all of the issues with lawyers and IP and <laughs> all of that stuff. But we do definitely care a lot about the development history behind games. There's so, so much you can learn when you have a game source code, um, when you have some of these materials that um, people used in the creation of the game. So uh, the really big story that we had was we had the source for Aladdin um, for the Genesis donated to us. And you know, it was donated anonymously by someone who uh, likely did not... I mean, it's not Disney, right? Like, <laughs> Disney did not <laughs> donate the source code to us. But we had someone with the foundation go through and uh, look through all of the source code, and they were able to rebuild a lot of cut enemies from the game. They were a lot able to see, you know, how things were maybe 
supposed to work that maybe didn't actually work that way in practice. And the greatest thing to come out of this was that there was a re-release of Aladdin that came out, like a commercial product came out of us having the source code for this. You know, we did this long, in-depth examination of the source. We obviously, you know, we don't have the rights to the source, so it's not like we put the source code up on the internet for anyone to take a look at. But, you know, we looked at it and were able to learn a lot of things about it and then share our findings with the world. And people got really excited about it, including Disney, and then Disney actually, you know, (laughs) put out a new product based on this. And there is in the Lion King uh, Aladdin combo uh, thing that came out on on pretty much every console on Switch and PS4 and all of that. There is a version that you can play that's sort of like the the fixed version. I forget what they call it exactly in the game, but it's it's the version that kind of makes the tweaks that were intended to be there, fixes the bugs, and just kind of polishes it all up. You can, of course, play it the way it was originally, you know, put out as well, but that's something that you can theoretically do when you have the source code for a game. So, you know, that's the that's the commercial version of it, which is definitely cool. And I think having commercial interest in video game history is vital to getting people on board. I mean, there's always going to be people who are uh, fans and interested in history and all of that who are totally gung-ho about this and into it. But I think that in order to make any real waves, in order to actually shake things up, you kind of do need to get commercial interest in it as well, because money makes the world go around and all of that. But obviously, outside of the commercial industry, there's a lot that you can learn just from a historical perspective as well. I mean, you can see things that were maybe intended to be in the game, but then either for memory reasons or for, like, you know, maybe it's not appropriate for this game or maybe... Running out of time. Oh, yeah, running out of time, absolutely. There's always things that you can learn that are like, this was maybe supposed to be in there, but wasn't for one reason or another. But, I mean, not only that, sometimes you can just get more context out of the source code. I mean, sometimes you have things in source code where it's like an enemy is unnamed in the actual game itself. But in the source, they've got a name. So is that their canonical name now? You know, I mean, there's there's all kinds of interesting things you can find in there. Um, of course, there's always, like, notes and stuff and... Uh, It really depends project to project, and especially system to system. It can vary wildly, of course. I mean, Source for like, an Atari 2600 game is going to look very, very different than Source for, like, a PS3 game that you can play online, (laughs) obviously, right? But there's always stuff that you can learn from that sort of thing. And so we think that it's really, really important that this stuff can be studyable. And not just by historians, because I think that there is a value in letting people who want to create games being able to let them look at the work that went into the classics. I mean, movie directors will release their scripts all the time. They'll they'll have scans of the scripts with all the different notes. There'll be director's cuts of movies. And, you know, back when the cool, like, DVD thing, when you would get cool movie DVDs that had, uh, like, director commentary over certain scenes and that sort of thing... Why is there none of that for video games, you know? There's so much you can learn from that for, I mean, A, if you're just interested in it, B, if you're a historian, and C, if you are a game maker or someone who wants to learn kind of 
what the thought process was like for some of these classic or even not so classic games. I mean, why did this game fail? Why did this game do well? You can learn a lot of those things when you have access to sort of the, you know, the closest thing we have to the thoughts of those developers as, as they were building it themselves. It's not going to be quite as good as a director's commentary over <laughs> over a movie, but the source code can can teach you a lot of that. Mm, yeah. It's been very heartening to see uh, increasing numbers of, of developers who, uh, at least the ones who uh, still own what they made, uh, increasing numbers releasing the source code to their to to their old stuff and just putting it online and saying, okay, this is free now. Do what you want with it. Yeah, I think that's fascinating that that's happening and, and really, really exciting. I mean, we're definitely still in the early stages of it, but there are at least some people taking notice of the fact that people can do cool things with source code and learn cool things from open sourcing a project. So I know recently the uh, Command and Conquer was just, uh, the source code for that was just released. And actually, they had a really excellent, I forget who it was, I think it was one of the producers or something on the uh, Command and Conquer re remake, told a really excellent story. It's a very sad story, but it's excellent for illustrating why the Video Game History Foundation should exist, about how the journey he took to try to get the original FMV cutscenes from that game and how, you know, it took him to all of these different people. And, um, oh, I think the lady from this department took them home um, because they were about to be thrown away. And it's like, oh, thank God someone, you know, someone stole them before they were thrown away. And then, oh, but now they're over here now. And anyways, it, it, he finally finds these tapes that supposedly had the... Uh, original cuts of these full motion videos on them and it turns out it was just a recording of them so he did all of this work and you know flew across the country and put all of this effort into tracking this down and it turns out that it, in fact nobody had saved it and uh now they just can't they, they just don't have that i mean you obviously can't recreate that because all those actors are much, much older now and um <laughs> you know it's <laughs> there's no way to really restore that perfectly now they're i'm sure they're doing an amazing job you know taking what video they have and upscaling it and and all kinds of tech tricks to make it really nice but you know there's a <laughs> that was a really horrible but also good story for me because i was like yeah there there really is a need for people to be on top of this and and trying to save it trying to you know make people think about it before it gets to be so many years down the line when they might actually need it again yeah and that's not even getting into the problems of, of bit rot and media degradation yeah yeah digitization is definitely it's a difficult thing to talk about because you know even myself this i think this is true of just anybody who starts to get an interest in this they're just like well j okay just digitize everything why <laughs> just do it and the reality of it is just that there is so much that even if we were working nonstop all the time, we would still never complete it. I mean, it's just that you have to sometimes pick and choose a little bit what things you're prioritizing to digitize. So, for instance, for something like paper that's 
not going to have bit rot. <laughs> I mean, obviously paper isn't forever either, but you have to sort of like prioritize things based on how volatile the media is. So, uh, by the way, if you have anything on magnetic media, any floppy disks or anything for any listeners, uh, do something about that right this second, because it's probably already dying. There's probably already some sectors of it that are just gone forever. So um, please try to do something about that now, because <laughs> mm. you don't have much time. Yeah, it's uh, it's scary and sad when you think about uh, all the stuff that is just sitting in boxes uh, waiting for someone to go, oh yeah, I've got that, and and then try and digitize it or even just try and read it and yeah. maybe the their drive doesn't recognize it and they get asked to initialize the disk and they're like yeah <laughs> Ooh, what happens if they accidentally click the wrong thing there yep You'd... yeah i mean the reality is just that it's very difficult i mean i've had conversations with developers and some smaller studios and stuff and it's like they are theoretically on board but they're not necessarily always willing to just hand over the data yet because, you know, they have lawyers or whatever to deal with or they're just not comfortable with it yet. But they also don't have the time, energy or equipment to actually do it. I mean, they, they agree. They know it should be done. They're not they're not arguing with me or anything. They, they know I'm right. Right. When I talk to them, they're like, we know, <laughs> we know it's uh, we're going to lose it, but we can't. And so, you know, at least at least they're thinking about it and there's, you know, there's some level of movement there, but yeah, I mean, especially when it comes to magnetic media and older media like that, I mean, it's, it can just be very, it's a very difficult ask for a lot of people to, to do it themselves. And sometimes that's the only option because there's lawyers or uh, copyright owners or whatever in the way of handing it off to someone else who's willing to do it right away. And then you, you have a, weird things that people might have in storage and not realize that other people think they're important like uh phil salvador's uh just recent case with the the maxis business unit and uh sim refinery yeah on the, on the <laughs> disk. yeah that's that's an excellent excellent point um which is why when I talk to people, I try to throw out as many random media things as I possibly can. And I sometimes even tend to start with, like, the least interesting stuff, um, you know, or or something that just sounds kind of off the wall. Like, uh, one of the ones that has worked pretty well in the past is, like, do you even have any old, like, photos of conventions? Like, did you take a disposable camera to a convention? And they'll be like, oh, yeah, actually, you know, like this, that's mm. not that's so far removed from what they think about when they think about their work, you know, whether they were in marketing or development or whatever. A lot of times they're thinking of like the physical things that they produced themselves, you know, the they when we tell people we want development stuff, they're like, OK, like the my hard drive backups or the floppy disks I have or the uh, prototype cartridge or whatever, whatever, you know. And those things tend to come fairly easily. But when you start asking for like, well, did you save any of your office correspondence? You know, did you save any business cards? Did, you know, like the there's things outside of just the game itself and the making of the game itself that could absolutely be interesting as well. And yeah, with the like you were saying with the uh, the sim refinery disc, you know, there was the commenter who 
Mm. When when Phil's article started circulating, there's the commenter on the Ars Technica article that's like, oh, I have this. And, you know, they're... How many people have the ability to read floppy disks right now? And is it still there? Has it been overwritten with a copy of Doom? You know, like there's <laughs> there's all kinds of things that can go wrong in this. And uh, if you don't catch these people before before they realize that it's of interest at all, I mean, it could even go into the trash. And that's much worse than them struggling to figure out how they can <laughs> actually get it digitized. And for us historians, when when we come across someone who uh, is just like, oh yeah, I've got all this stuff, and and it's already all digitized, and they send it to you, that's just heaven for us. <laughs> <laughs> Gosh, I don't even know if I've had that. Oh no, I have had that happen once. <laughs> I was like, you've had people have their stuff digitized already. That's amazing. Yeah, like one of my one of my go to uh, examples would be uh, when I'm. I was doing my Mac gaming history book. Uh, I interviewed a whole bunch of people who worked at Freeverse Software, which was a, a, one of the major shareware publishers on the Mac side. And um, they were a pretty big name in the early days of the iPhone as well. And two separate people sent me this massive, uh, like two, three gigabyte collection of old uh, marketing materials, um, work in progress, um, things for marketing, uh, press info about their games, every photo they'd ever taken in the oh studio. My so That's they had incredible. Like thousands of photos <laughs> of them all at their parties, um, being stupid around the office, going to conventions, everything. That yeah, that's a blessing. That's very very rare. But I hope that more people, you know, I hope as we sort of circulate more of this stuff and more articles and stories about game history come out. I mean, I hope it. I hope there's kind of a it feeds into itself effect, right? Like when we publish good video game history, people realize, oh, this stuff that I have, um, people might actually want to take a look at this, and they put it online, and then people see cool stuff is online, and then that inspires more work, and then that inspires more people to put more of their stuff out, and uh, so on and so forth. I hope that's the way it goes. I, I suspect that it does. I mean, you know, especially with the example of Phil's stuff, I mean, it was so instantaneous to see, like, interest in this thing. Oh, wait, I have this thing, <laughs> you know? Yeah. Um, and even, you know, some of the people I've reached out to to interview, they're so excited. They're like, oh, I had no idea this would be interesting to anyone. This, you know, this was just my life. I don't, you know, it, when you're, people are looking at their own careers, it's often, I think, if you're not someone like Shigeru Miyamoto or Will Wright or something, it's often hard to imagine that, you know, your career could be just as interesting as something like that. So... A lot of times when you reach out to people, they're like, oh, really? You care about that? Sweet. Yeah, let's talk. <laughs> and that's the best. So if, if we were to, uh, uh, get, to, 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 tell, to tell my listeners, uh, if you have any stuff uh, or, or you want to help, um, how would you summarize uh, what they can do to support games history work? Well, I think the easiest thing to do 
if you have the means to, is to just upload it all to the Internet Archive. Um, the Internet Archive is an incredible resource. It's free for everyone. Everyone can access it. So that's as long as you have the means to digitize it, uh, that's the most accessible place that you can put it right now. Um, if you have stuff and you're either not sure about how to deal with it or, you know, you it's sensitive and you're like, well, look, I want to get this donated, but hey, I don't own the copyrights, so this can't go anywhere yet. Feel free to reach out to us. We have ways of we, we've preserved, you know, just like the Game Informer stuff. It's like we've digitized plenty of things that we are still figuring out how to make legally <laughs> available to people. And that's that's something I want to touch on for just a second, just because I think that um, I think it's worth talking about people. Obviously, you know, I'm a historian, too, and I'm super interested in this stuff, too. I never want to keep any information from anyone. But this is all kind of an unprecedented area we're in right now. I mean, there are there's some precedent for being able to, like, rent a book through the Internet Archive. I don't know if you've ever used that feature, but it'll be like, you can check out this book for 14 days, and then it'll give you access to this, like, you know, OCR text document or whatever that you're able to then look through. But you just have to check that box that's like, I'm checking this out. Uh, we don't have that for game stuff yet. I suspect that there is a way to make this sort of thing studyable, especially when it comes to source code. Maybe there's some kind of thing that's like, check here if you're using this for research purposes. Because right now, legally speaking, I mean, we haven't established any of that stuff yet. And so even for stuff that like the Strong Museum of Play owns, um, there's some stuff that they have in their collection, but it can only be accessed on site. In fact, the vast, 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 vast majority of their stuff can only be accessed in person because that's the only way that a library can legally deal with this stuff right now. And, you know, I hope that we can move the needle on that and change it because I don't want to restrict people uh, to having to go visit the Strong Museum of Play or visit our office to be able to study things. But the fact of the matter is right now, that we can't just dump everything online. So that's why I say, if you're able to, go ahead and dump things on the Internet Archive because you're not going to get in trouble. And the Internet Archive has a lot of, you know, they might take it down if they get a cease and desist. But, you know, that's that's the place where you can just go ahead and throw it for right now. Um, and then if you are a little bit more nervous about putting it out there or um, anything like that, you're welcome to contact us and we can walk you through what the best options are for your materials I'm trying to think if there's if there's really anything else i mean we don't take everything because there are other organizations out there sometimes doing stuff so a lot of times people will be like i have this rare game um and we are not i mean that's not something that we deal in so we'll send it to another organization that can properly preserve that game or sometimes if it's something that really needs to be scanned that's really important um we work with some other organizations that do more scanning than we're able to do at the scale we're at right now. So, yeah, you're welcome to reach out to us with anything you have. Or if there's just someone you want us to talk to, like if you're like, hey, uh, here's my dad's email. He was a developer. I don't know if I can. <laughs> I don't know if he's going to want to give anything up. But, you know, uh, 
I'll put you guys in contact or something like that. Um, any of that is is good too. Yeah, and anything like that is awesome. And uh, that actually reminds me that uh, just just this past few days, I actually spoke to the kids of Doug Smith, the Load Runner creator. Oh, cool. So Doug, Doug died in uh, 2014, and uh, when I did a, an episode on Load Runner. One of his kids got in touch with me and and said uh, something like that you did a great job on that story and then I of course turned around and said I'd love to talk to you and she said sure and, and I bet my brother would would be up for that too and so I've just spoken to them and I'm going to put something together I'm not sure yet oh but that's it excellent will be exactly <laughs> uh, so th th that's another thing that you can do if you um if you have a relative or a friend who uh, unfortunately passed away and uh, their story was not really told uh, another thing you can do is just get in touch with uh, a historian or the video game history foundation and say um, i want to help uh, preserve this person's work and their, their memories as, as best i can what can i do yeah i mean we have um we have an article coming out, so I don't want to talk about it too much yet, but there is a developer who has uh, since passed away that um, we've been sent a lot of their uh, development material and are kind of combing through it, because a lot of it's just in the form of, like, hard drive backups, like I was saying earlier. And, um, you know, not everyone's going to be comfortable sending an entire hard drive backup to someone, because, again, like I was saying, there's all kinds of <laughs> things that could be on something like that. But yeah, I mean, obviously it's it's wonderful when people are interested in preserving their own history when they're still alive, but there's still a lot you can do even after someone's death if you have access to really any of the stuff that they have. Or if even if you just have some memories that you want to share with someone, there's usually a historian that's willing to listen and willing to uh, talk to you about that. Uh, so what else do you guys have um coming up you know, on, on the horizon what what projects or um, particular interests uh, are you going to be focusing on in the coming months <laughs> well uh you know it's an interesting year for that um a lot of our <laughs> yeah. original plans have sort of fallen by the wayside because of the uh covid19 situation so this year was really meant to be largely, uh, you know, we were obviously going to continue doing the work that we do every day, but this year was meant to be in large part a fundraising year because uh, we've been working on this officially since 2017 and unofficially for much longer than that. And neither of us have ever gotten paid even a single penny. So <laughs> there's, um, you know, not, not that the only purpose is to get us paid, but I would like to be able to do this full time. Um, right now, I can't afford to do it full time, and we'd like to be able to bring more people on. We'd like to be able to have like an actual staff librarian, and uh, I mean, gosh, all kinds of things. We we desperately need a bigger office for housing the library because we're already outgrowing it. So that was really what this year was supposed to be about. Um, and because of the pandemic, we can't really do a whole lot of the fundraising things we were planning. So. Um, we are working on some more content, which is a lot of which is coming up pretty soon here on the pipeline. So I don't want to spoil any of it uh, too much yet, but there's several things we are uh, working on content wise. And hopefully we'll get to do more 
you know, a lot of what we do as well is just kind of general advocacy. I mean, we give talks at things like GDC and uh, retro shows and, uh, you know, things like the Portland Retro Gaming Convention and, uh, or sorry, Portland Retro Gaming Expo and MAGFest and all kinds of other shows here in the U.S. And in fact, Frank even gave a talk in Poland last year. Um, we do a lot of advocating for, I mean, I don't want to, it's more than this. It's more than just caring about history, but it's, you know, how can we kind of get people moving on this? How can we get the industry to start caring beyond just, you know, like when I talk to them, when they're like, yeah, I know we probably should be saving it, but <laughs> so we do a lot of advocacy for uh, how you can start doing that. What's the, what can you start doing at your company to kind of kickstart things and what's important about saving not just the games themselves but you know like i was saying earlier we have kind of a different way of thinking about preserving video game history which is that we don't focus really on the games whatsoever we don't have a game collection at the foundation so we normally are doing some of that we'll probably do some virtual talks this year but <laughs> uh not so much on the flying out places to to do that um, so yeah, it's it's a lot of uh, preservation work right now that's just kind of heads down and getting some stuff digitized and then also creating some content to kind of keep people interested. Cool. And for you personally, do you have any uh, games history related things that, that you're wanting to work on in your own time? Oh gosh. Uh, <laughs> I've been so busy lately. It's It's funny you say that because I was just realizing last week that I've been without a project for a couple months and that it's like I was like oh that's the thing that's wrong with my mental health right now is I don't have a project to work on that's why I'm feeling weird all the time so I don't have anything to announce right this second but um definitely am starting a couple of other you know poking at a couple of other things that might be interesting I was working on um researching the Wonderswan Mama Mite that pregnancy tracker for a while I have sort of hit a dead end until I can go to Japan, I think, um, until travel is lifted. I actually had a pretty decent conversation with someone at Tanita, who, uh, that's the company that created the Mama Mite. And they're, they're a company that cares about their history, but I don't know if I'm just speaking to the wrong person or they care about their history in theory, but don't actually have anything to show for it. Um, I suspect <laughs> that they actually do have stuff to show for it. It's just difficult with them um, with kind of a language barrier and with me talking to like what I assume is a PR person mm -hmm. to try to get much further than, you know, they, they sent me like a scan of a brochure that it was in once, which is really nice. I mean, that that scan doesn't exist anywhere else on the web. So that's exciting. But um, I suspect that there's much more than that. But it's going to it's sort of on hold right now until I can get to the right person. Mm. Yeah, PR people drive me nuts sometimes. So. <laughs> they can be, you know, retired PR people are the best, yeah. but <laughs> they're they're willing to talk. But yeah, PR people can sometimes be a little bit of a of a gate to what you're actually looking for. Yeah, they, they do a very important job, and the good ones are, are just amazing. But when you're trying to do stories that are like games history or about kind of offbeat things, which is pretty much all that I do. I do offbeat stuff and I do games history. Then they get in the way. 
Yeah, they all the time. <laughs> yeah, they certainly can. Um. <clears throat> anyway, that's a <laughs> save that rant for another time. <laughs> um, <laughs> I think I've uh, asked you about everything I wanted to. Is there anything you wanted to ask me before we wrap it up? Oh, um. Well, I, I'm curious, actually. This maybe isn't what you're looking for, but I'm curious why you uh, asked to have me on your podcast, because I'm, like, among the first people you've interviewed, so I'm, I'm very flattered. Or the, among the first historians you've interviewed, I should say, because you've interviewed plenty of uh, developers and that sort of thing. Yeah, and this particular series thing that, that you're part of, that's a, a side series from the... <coughs> The main documentary thing that I, that I normally do uh, is pretty new. Yeah, there's a, you're like the fourth or fifth person. There's another one that I've got to uh, finish editing uh, that'll be going up before you. Um, I think it was uh, kind of I I like to uh, jump around a bit in and the sorts of voices that, that I'm hearing from. And uh, I, I liked the combination with you of uh, you having the connection to uh, serious historical research through the Games History, Games History Foundation. And uh, then you've got this other perspective as someone who collects and who works in retail. And so I thought that would be interesting to just get your get your voice in there and Plus, Phil mentioned you, and, and so that put you kind of fr front of mind <laughs> yeah, as well. I wasn't expecting that. Um, <laughs> yeah, you know, and I, I'm only very recently starting to recognize that I might have some interesting perspective on, uh, like, so, you know, when we talk about game history and stuff a lot, we're talking about the history of... Uh, we're talking about what was happening at the time with what was the current generation at the time. So, you know, in, in the 90s, you're talking about systems that were around in the 90s, and you're not really talking about, I mean, you know, there were like a couple Atari 2600 games that came out in 1999 or 1990 or whatever. But um, in general, you know, you're just the magazines and all the coverage and any historical record of that is just going to be talking about what was happening there. And uh, I'm just now realizing that we sort of have this, like, second layer of history that's happening now. Um, I mean, sort of going back, it goes back technically pretty far, but there's really, like, a big resurgence in um, caring about the past that starts happening around the late 90s um, and early mm -hmm. 2000s even more, and, and especially, especially now. I mean, I've only been in the retro games world uh, professionally since about 2012. Um, but even since 2012, I mean, the amount of interest in retro games has absolutely exploded. Um, so there's kind of the second history that's going on that I think also needs to be documented. That's like what... Obviously, the, the PS4 is popular in 2020, but so is the Nintendo GameCube. The Nintendo GameCube's, like, really big right now. Um, and because we don't have a whole lot of coverage of that stuff right now, I wonder if, you know, 20 years from now, if there will be any recollection of that, if people will be able to tell that story. So, um, 
you kind of got me thinking and <laughs> I started thinking about this uh, just a couple months ago. I'm like, does someone need to be... There are a couple retro game magazines, so I, I shouldn't say that no one's doing this because there actually are, are people doing this, but um, does there need to be a bigger push for telling this like second history that's going on at the same time as the modern stuff? Maybe. Maybe, there's, yeah. There's always, there's always room for more... <laughs> Always room for more uh, talk about games history and, and more new angles of approach. I think that's a, a key thing there. A lot of uh, writing about old games and about games history is kind of, it's coming at it from a game-centric perspective. There's a nowhere near enough that's coming at it from the various cultural angles and the, de and the development angles. Yeah, I mean, with the exception of the enormous franchises you know something like your your pokemons and your minecrafts and that sort of thing um you're absolutely right i mean if it wasn't a giant phenomenon if it didn't make the cover of time magazine you know uh, then it's just it's not really approached from that way and yeah i absolutely agree there's there there should be a whole heck of a lot more of that i think that's what what makes this interesting so much more so than just the games themselves my thanks again to Kelsey for sharing her knowledge and passion about games history and preservation. You can support her work at the Video Game History Foundation via gamehistory.org slash donate. They accept PayPal, Patreon, and credit or debit card payments, as well as, of course, donations of various games history-related materials. Although you should get in touch with them to discuss that kind of thing before you, you go sending them anything. Kelsey's retro game store is called Pink Gorilla Games. It's located in Seattle, Washington, and you can find it online at pinkgorillagames.com. And you can also follow her on Twitter, at Kels Lewin. I'll have links to all these things and much of the stuff that we spoke about in this interview included in the show notes. As a reminder, this interview is part of a new series I'm running alongside the usual documentary and narrative style stuff I do on this show. I've also run interviews with the individuals behind Schmappulations, the CRPG Addict, the Obscuratory, and also the author of a book on the history of the Dutch games industry, and I have lots more planned for the future. If you have any suggestions or requests for people you'd like to hear me talk to, hit me up on Twitter using either at lifeandtimesvg or my personal handle at mossasi, or email me on richard at lifeandtimes.games. And as always, remember, you can support my work through paypal.me slash mossasi, or patreon.com slash lifeandtimesofvideogames. Stay tuned for the beginning of season four around a week from now. I'm working to a target of July 31st, so maybe even exactly a week, if we're lucky. In the meantime, take care of yourselves in this scary, crazy world right now. I'll see ya. <laughs>